Come in, sir, for you are weary And the night is cold out there Though our lives are very humble What we have, we have to share Do you remember the powerful scene in the musical Les Miserables with the bishop and Valjean, who's been brought before him for having stolen the silver? In one production, Valjean is on his knees with Colm Wilkinson as the bishop. The bishop lowers himself, lowers himself to his own knees before Valjean and gently makes the sign of the cross in blessing and forgiveness. A sentimental scene, but powerful still, touching us today. Of course, we're in the 21st century, and we continue to fill the seats for performances of Les Miserables because of the compelling characters, glorious music, certainly, and the dramatic conflicts as they play out before us. But we want great reads, too, with stories set in our time, with compelling, complex characters in gripping, dramatic conflicts. In Small Town Sins, a recent novel by Ken Jarorowski, there's a scene with a cleric and a criminal. Andy is the character who sets the stage, and we have highlights. I strode along Pulaski Street, head down, and almost tripped over the wide front steps of St. Stanislaus Church. Maybe I could rest inside and gather my thoughts in the quiet. But some guy was locking the two wide front doors. Are you Father Glynn? I am. The police chief, Joe Kreiner, told me to get in touch with you. I um, overdosed. He said that you did counseling. Can we talk? I'm very busy tonight. You can call the church phone and leave a message and we can schedule something later. But see, Father, I'm thinking of using again and, you know, I need help. I'm sorry, but like I just told you, I need to go home now. That's not very Christ-like, Father. He seemed to have doubts about me from the start. It was evident in his curt dismissal. But my response tripped his radar and he flashed a bemused smile as if his doubts were now justified. I'll be the judge of what's Christ-like, son. Now, good evening. I'd like to make a confession. Can you at least do that? I heard it's good for the soul. He sighed as if talking to a persistent idiot. Confessions are heard every other Saturday between one and three in the afternoon. But what if I die before then, like, like I need to get rid of these sins now? Son, I don't think you're serious. Now, if you'd like me to call Chief Kreiner, I can do that too, and it's your choice. He reached into his pocket and took out a phone. No, Father, no need to call the police. But, but I'm not kidding you. I've done some bad stuff. We can talk about it the Saturday after next. See, I stole a briefcase from someone's car. The weather had been sunny all day and now hovered in the low 80s, but I could see his blood chill after that sentence left my lips. I let the silence sink in for a moment, savoring the expression on his pasty face. Is that so, he said. That's so, I said. Broke the briefcase open? No money in there. Not even a dime. There was some other stuff, though. 
Now will you hear my confession, or do you want me to leave and come back in two Saturdays? He unlocked the doors. I'll give him this. He regained his composure fast. The hand holding the key didn't miss its target or shake in nervousness. He stepped forward, and I followed. Inside, the church was cool, and our footsteps echoed. Red glass candles flickered on the altar, leaving the rest of the Gothic space in shadows. The priest stood between the rows of pews and motioned for me to take a seat. Instead, I moved over to the confession box. My knees popped as I went down to the kneeler. A moment later, he entered the other side and slid the window up, leaving only a screen between us. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Highlights from a new novel titled Small Town Sins by Ken Jaworowski, a staff editor at the New York Times and contributor to the cultural section and playwright with six full-length plays to his credit. The story of how and where he sets his story is especially interesting for us here in our region. And we had a chance to speak with him about his tale, its telling, and his ties to the Commonwealth. I'm a Philadelphia guy who, until I was 18 or 19, never even left the city. I think two or three times I went to the the Jersey Shore, but I never left the city. I was a Philadelphia street kid. Then I go away to Shippensburg University, and one of the first mornings of there, I get woken up by a sound, and I'm like, what is that sound? What is it? Clip-clop, clip-clop. It was the Amish going down the street. And there's a guy who grew up in this, you know, in Philadelphia, exposed to the Amish. For two or three days, I was perplexed by the whole town. Within two or three weeks, I absolutely fell in love with it and loved the place, loved all the small towns, moved out, moved to Manhattan, and promptly forgot about it all <laughs> until my daughter decides to go look at colleges in Pennsylvania. We go to Bloomsburg. We go to Penn State. We went to Westchester. I'm trying to think if we went anywhere else. We did not go to ship, but uh, we went to several of them. And all those emotions came flooding back. I'm like, oh, this is where I've got to set my novel. And I set the novel there because uh, of my daughter bringing me back to the area. When you were a little guy, little Ken, were you scribbling in your school notebooks? Were you writing poems? What writing were you doing as a little guy? I've always had a story. I've always had a story. I've always loved stories. I don't think my father ever truly sat down and taught me a lesson about do this, do this. But I always remember her telling me a story like, oh, I remember my friend did this and teaching me through stories and teaching me through examples rather than sitting me down and say, don't do this or don't do this. Or he would say, hey, the time I didn't do this, my car broke down. And let me tell you about that time. And I think that's that was it. And then I do remember, you know, jotting down a couple of stories when I was a kid and I, I get out of college and I say, I am going to be the next Hemingway, because I'm so smart and I'm such a brilliant and creative writer. And after five years, I publish nothing. After 10 years, I publish nothing. Uh, Over 20 years, I don't publish. And by the way, I've had some success in theater and I obviously I worked for the New York Times, so I published a lot of nonfiction, but I could never publish a novel. COVID came around. I wrote straight through this novel as fast as I could. I wrote it in five months, edited it in two months. And my agent looked at it and said, I could sell this in three weeks. And he was wrong. He sold it in two weeks and six days. So after decades of trying to publish, 
there it is. In no time it happened. It's crazy. I'm still whirling from it all. I've been uh, the past couple of weeks. I've, I've read in New York. I've read in Princeton. I've read in Philly last week and I've been all over the place. And it's been a long time in coming. It is a success. It works. It draws us in. We're compelled. We can't stop. We are intrigued by the characters. But I wanted to go back to your playwriting. You have a wonderful sense, whether it is for stage or in this novel, of creating characters who come together. Now, this is a small town, so people will bump into each other in the grocery store and their lives will touch. Even so, when you bring them together for dramatic purposes, it doesn't seem forced. The novel's first sentence suggests there's something deeper than chance. I can trace so much of my life back to a summer night when I was 17. Everything starts from then and links the years that follow. Like one of those connect-the-dots pages you played with as a kid. Begin right here, draw a line to there, then another, then again. Sooner or later, an image emerges. It's a gift to do such storytelling naturally. I hope I have a gift for it, but it's also very, I found it again and again and again to be true in my life, especially now since social media, someone you haven't seen in 30 years pops up, the next thing you know, you have a conversation. But um, not only that, I remember when I first, after I left Philly, I moved to Manhattan and there I am walking down the street and it didn't happen once. It happened twice. I bumped into people I haven't seen in 15 years. And it's amazing. Now, now, if you ask an audience, a reader, to do that too many times and and subscribe to the coincidence, it's not it's not fair to a reader. But sometimes you have to put that in. You have to say sometimes these things happen. They really do. And then I moved to New Jersey, and after after by the way, after my whole life of insulting New Jersey, I grew up in Philly and I insulted New Jersey. I moved to Manhattan and I insulted New Jersey. And now, because the universe loves to play a great joke on me, it moves me to New Jersey, and here I, <laughs> and here I am. Well, what about sense of place? You create a place here that you said, oh, this is where I'm going to set my novel. It wasn't arbitrary. You bring this place to life, and these people are from this place. Clearly, these are not people who you're just plopping down in Locksburg. I, I like to think of it uh, as the sense of place here as another character. The, the town itself, Locksburg, uh, fictional town, uh, Locksburg, Pennsylvania, is another character. Look, I love New York City more than anything. I lived there for eight or nine years, and I loved it more than anything. But it's, it's sometimes you see every other book is set there. Every other book seems to be set there, and I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get out of the city and go to some of these towns that I remember. Not only did I go to school there, but uh, for a couple of years, I did a lot of work with some friends in Harrisburg and around the surrounding areas. Oh, I actually went to Clarion University for one semester as well, too. So it's not just that I went to the school and, and left it. And then my father and I were huge fishermen. And boy, did we used to we used to go everywhere. We went to Poconos all over the place. We would essentially sometimes just drive along and pull over and fish. And I should have gills for all the fishing I, I did back then. But but back to your question, yes, I think the town is another character. And I think it was just something I wanted to pull away, not just from New York City or Philadelphia, but someplace that people in the cities tend to forget. Also, I stereotype, totally stereotyped small town Pennsylvania at one time in my life, thinking, oh, well, those towns are all the same. And boy, they're not. They each have a personality, especially now with the decline of certain industries, steel, coal, 
and sadly, in some of them, the, the rise of opioid addiction and, and, and other addictions like that. There are, there are towns in Pennsylvania that are coming back strong, that are great. There are places you want to visit. Well, I went to Ohio Pile, Pennsylvania, where they did rails to trails where you can go along for, for miles. And it was great. And there are some beautiful towns like that. And then there's some who are not so beautiful. Some are struggling and some are working hard. And these people there are working and they're trying to get it together. But how do you try to pull yourself together if you can't even find a job, if you can't even pay your bills, if you can't do this? Again, I'm not saying anything profound. I know everybody knows this. But to see it in action when you're there makes you think about it quite a bit. And in my case, it made me set a novel there. We can respond to the way you're characterizing the place and also the people who are in the place. These people have choices to make. And when you talk about sins in the title, sin is often said to involve choice, choosing yourself over the good of others. And there's a cumulative effect. Individuals making choices like that can develop into systems that aren't just, for example. It's complicated and you don't shy away from the complications. Right. And I, I wrote down when, when you were speaking, what is a sin? I mean, a sin is not black and white. I was talking the other day about, I'm sure Mary, many people are familiar with Jean Valjean and, um, you know, who steals a loaf of bread and spends years and years in jail. But he still, if I remember correctly, stole a loaf of bread to feed his nephew, his, his sister's son. Do we call that a sin? He's a thief. Hey, he stole it. He admit he freely admits it. But why did he steal it? I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, in when good people do bad things. Uh, and what about when bad people do good things? There's a character in this novel who is a former heroin addict. And if you were to catch him at any time in his life, you would point you and I would both point at him and say, there's a bad person. There's a bad person. Later on, though, he takes care of an ailing child and a, and a wife and he struggles to, to hold himself together. You would look at him then, you'd say, there's a good person. Hey, look, I, let me tell you, I think I'm the greatest father who ever walked the face of the earth. I, I absolutely am, right? But if you catch me one time screaming at my kid, what are you doing? Don't do that. You would point to me like, there's the worst father who ever lived. If someone catches us at the wrong time, again, I have to repeat, I, I, I don't think I'm saying anything profound. We all know this, but I like to sometimes look at it a little bit more in depth. And again, to see what happens when a good person does a bad thing and a bad person does a good thing. I'm trying to skirt around the issue a little bit because I don't want to give too much of the plot of the book away, but there are people there who at the time think their actions are good, let's say, let's just say. And sometimes good intentions turn into uh, turn into bad actions. I think you've done a very good job of, of getting it across without any spoilers. And maybe what draws us in is that those decisions or those people whom you present to us, Callie and Andy and Lily and everybody, we probably feel like we know some of them, even if we don't live in Shemokin or even if we don't live in Locksburg. Yeah, we've all been in the same situation, even small things. I remember one time finding a wallet with a stack of money in there. I, that, that actually happened to me. At the time, it was a lot of money. It seemed like there was about $400. And boy, did I think about that forever. I eventually turned it back in. But even if you do, you know, I have to use the air quotes, you do the, the right thing or the good thing. Boy, there's a part of us who thinks, what happens if I didn't do that? And then, and by the way, what happens if you, at the time, I found four or $500. Again, I turned it back in and I wasn't in financial straits. What happens if I was? Could we rationalize it? Could we rationalize, well, hey, that person probably could lose it and I need to pay my bills. 
we all rationalize. We all, we all, at one point or another, I think we all think we're doing the right thing. And back to the question of sin for a second, you know, what happens, what happens if we overpay for our sins? What happens if we do something wrong? You know, there's no great justice that says you will only get this. What happens if you do the wrong thing? And it spins out of control. And we all know this. We've all done things that have gotten out of our grasp. And sometimes you want to stop and and sometimes you can't stop. So back to, to sin for a second. Yeah, sometimes we don't know what the punishment will be. We can't imagine what the punishment will be. Your characters are so real in their complexity. Sometimes they might be doing good things. They might be doing things that are off kilter. But how do we judge their actions or their heart if we can at all? Maybe I was maybe I was too black and white there when I talked about a bad person doing a good thing or a good person a bad thing. I mean, we're all a mix, aren't we? We're all and and, and again, we all might think we're good and we're good people and we believe ourselves to be good persons. But how about that person you just took their parking spot? And they look at you and like, what a jerk that person is, you know, and we're a bad person to that person. I just wanted the parking spot. You know, I, I'm, I'm making a light example, but I'm sure there, there are other things. So we're all a mix of good and bad for better. That's a very simplistic way to put it. A better way to put it is a quote I once heard. And one of these days, I'm going to look it up and find out who said it. The quote was, we're all the same person expressed differently. And I like that a lot because. When I read that story about the guy who punches his boss, I think, oh, yeah, but I would ne- I would hope to think I would never do that. But but something in me connects with that emotion. And um, so, yeah, I think we're, we're all mixed. By, by the way, how boring would it be? How many if, if people were incredibly nice all the time or incredibly mean all the time? We're all a mix. We know what happens when we don't have our morning coffee and we get cranky. <laughs> and you also handle the relationship parts and I'm talking about romantic relationship parts and so on, in a way that is real and believable. And again, that's something we would we would notice right away if they weren't. You know, we're living in the 2023 world, and you got to talk about if you're a guy and you're creating Callie or Paula or whatever, Lily, how about going about that in this way that makes us feel like we can understand or relate I'll go back to that quote again, too. You know, we're all the same person expressed differently. If I think a character would do something that I wouldn't do, you still have to follow the character. You still have to. I think if we if we try to make every character like ourselves, again, talk about boring, it would probably be boring. So sometimes you look at a character and like, I wouldn't do that. But I know people who would. To go, oh, I was I was talking recently about Scott Smith's and he, he was kind of a great author who was kind enough to blur my uh, novel. His big book a couple of years back was A Simple Plan, made into a film too, and it's really fun to watch. And someone asked me to write about my favorite novels, and I put that on there. And I wrote every single action that these characters take. I'm screaming at them, don't do that. And boy, I can't stop reading, you know? So it, it was fun. I, um, I was screaming at every character not to, not to do that. And when they did do that, I found myself reading even faster. So back to the characters, yeah, I uh, I tried to make them realistic, you know, and, and not just kind for kindness sake or mean for meanness sakes. We all have, oh, if I'm going to be pretentious and quote again, I always love that quote from The Rules of the Game was the film. And it said, the tragedy of life is that everyone has their reasons. And I want that parking spot. That's my reason. But for the guy who doesn't get the parking spot, I'm his tragedy. 
So, uh, yeah, everybody has their reasons. And going back to the playwriting, because you have been a, a successful playwright, what about dialogue? You seem to have a flair for differentiating two or more characters in a scene and making it sound natural and sustaining those voices every time one of them turns up in the book, like you surely do on stage with your characters. Thank you for saying that, and I hope it's true. I'll tell you what I think. If, if there's any success I have in dialogue, I, could, I can attribute it all to the stage. You will not learn how good or bad your story is until you put it on stage. Look, if you write some, if you write short stories where people will, even if it's not good, people are nice. We know people are nice. We know they want to be kind to you, especially your friends. But boy, you put something on stage, you instantly learn whether it works or not. I have written pages of theater script that I would look at and think, oh God, I am the next Shakespeare. This thing is brilliant behind all brilliant. You put it on the stage, it sinks. You look over, the person next to you is checking their watch. The person on the other side is trying to get their bag together to walk out of the theater. You learn instantly in the theater what works and what does not work. I tried to bring a little bit of that to the novel as well, too. But boy, I will never forget writing a two or three page monologue for the stage and seeing people yawn. And you're like, oh, God, your heart gets crushed. Granted, it didn't make it to the stage. It was in a rehearsal room. And even your kind friends are looking and checking the checking their uh, watch and everything, too. So I think if I have if I have uh, had any success with that, thank you for saying so. I think a lot of it is attributed to uh, to the theater work I've done. And the other thing is that we'll be introducing you as an editor, staff editor at The New York Times. What does that mean there? And how does being an editor in that situation affect the way you write? Do you cut yourself off as you're going along because you're editing as you go along? Tell us about I that think- dynamic. Uh, I, that's a great question, because let me tell you, that's why I think this novel got published. To go back and, and summarize for a second, I, again, for over 20 years, I've, I've done a lot of journalism, done a lot of theater, but I always went to a novel, and I, I've written three or four of them, probably maybe even five, I can't remember. They're all collecting dust in a box somewhere. None of them ever got published. No, no agent would, all agents brushed them off. They never even got to a publisher. I said to myself, I'm going to try one last time. And I have to be honest, and I'm not being self-deprecating here. I don't know how good a writer I am, but I know I'm a decent editor. I know I get paid for that. I've known for 19 years I've been working for the New York Times, and they pay me to edit. So at least I must be capable or competent at, at, at bare minimum. So this is what I said I was going to do. I said, I'm going to write as fast as I can. I'm going to write. I was so pretentious back in the day. I would write a sentence and then go back and read it five times to make sure. Don't worry about that. Keep going, right? And if anybody's listening who, who who would like to write, I think it's a good strategy. At least I don't want to tell you how to write, but it was a good strategy for me. And this was it. Write as fast as I could. I wrote as fast as I could. I kept it going. If I didn't know the capital of Brazil, let's say, if I wanted to write down Philadelphia and keep going, I'll go back later. Don't go on the internet because you know what I'll do on the internet? I'll go down a rabbit hole and spend three hours looking at J-Lo's newest movie. So I just kept going as fast as I can. I wrote the novel in five months, and then I spent two to three months slowly editing it. There are times I would write an answer. You know, someone, a character would ask another character a question, and the the character would answer in three or four paragraphs. After I was done editing, I would edit it down to a simple yes, 
you know, or something like that. I would, you don't need that, but, but, but I allowed myself to babble in a sense, and I would edit myself to sound smart and, or edit the characters to be more authentic. So that was my secret. Yeah. Oh, it, your, your initial question was about journalism. I, that's where I learned it. I learned it about journalism, edit it down to the best it can be. I think Hemingway has a quote on that, something along the lines of the, the first draft is just the beginning. It's all, as a matter of fact, maybe that's his other one. I think it's all in the, it's all in the editing. And there it was, uh, again, after 20 years of trying, seven months total for the novel and sold it in three weeks. Why is it that you really were compelled to give it one more shot? I don't know. That is a great question. Again, I, I, I wasn't, I don't want to oversell it. I wasn't wildly successful and I still write for the theater. I wasn't wildly successful, but I had a couple of nice shows in New York. I just had the second, uh, a second one run in Paris and, and some in London. I had a great show at the Edinburgh Festival, but I just kept going back to it. I, I think there's something about it too. You want something that lasts after you finish your, your, your play. That's it. It's gone. It's, it's never to be seen again unless it gets another production. But the novel does allow you to get a complexity that you won't, you can't get on stage. The stage has certain things that a novel can't do, and a novel has a thing that the, that the stage can't do. And I think I just kept going back to it thinking, I want to explore something a little bit more. And that's what I kept doing. But, and I'm not, I'm not kidding you. I swear I'm telling you the truth because my wife doesn't believe me. I said, this was it. This is the last time. And it really was. I think this was going to be the last time I went for it. I couldn't, you know, couldn't keep spending the time on it. And um, and it worked. But it's not the last time now, right? You're on, on to something new, are you? Uh, I, if you hear that, that's me knocking wood. I just, um, and look, I've, if you notice, I keep stopping myself because I'm such a superstitious person. I don't want to say it. And I'm just, no, no, I'm going to say it anyway. Um, yeah, I just submitted the second Locksburg novel. And uh, and it takes place in the town. It mentions some of the same characters, but it does not. It's three new stories inside the inside this novel. So I just submitted it to my agent within uh, <laughs> within two weeks. Fingers are my fingers are crossed so much they hurt, and hopefully that will uh, come about too. Ken Jaworowski, a staff editor at the New York Times. He's a contributor to the cultural section, and he's a playwright. And he talked with us about his new novel, Small Town Sins, just issued by Henry Holt and Company. And Ken just admitted to us right there that there is another Locksburg novel on the way. For more information on the web, his name name.com. So it's Ken, K-E-N, J-A-W-O-R. O-W-S-K-I, Ken, J-A-W-O-R-O-W-S-K-I, or HenryHolt.com, or simply Small Town Sins. That's the title of the new novel just issued by Henry Holt. And we will talk with Ken the next time when Volume 2 or the next volume in this series is issued. Again, for more information on the web, KenJawarowski.com and you can look for his work and his writings in the New York Times on his website. There is actually, I think, a section where you can look to see some of his writings in the New York Times. But the novel is Small Town Sins, issued by Henry Holt.